0: Hey dickheads, we've got a special pink laser beam of truth that beamed from two places on the globe to your brain hole. It came from New York City and San Diego. We interviewed Sam J. Miller, who is the author of Blackfish City, which you may remember as a dick-like suggestion from episode 15, the Falcons Hammer episode, where I suggested Blackfish City as your dick-like suggestion. He's been nominated for a shit ton of awards, including the James Chiptree Award, the Nebula Award this year for Blackfish City, but he's also won the Shirley Jackson Award and the Andre Norton Award for Best Young Adult Novel. That's a long way of saying he's a goddamn good writer. So we're really excited to have him here today. We're going to talk uh, about his books. Also PKD, we're going to nerd out about what we think PKD would be doing these days. So there's plenty of time in this interview to stretch out your dickhead muscles and learn about somebody new. So enjoy the interview.
1: Dickheads, joining us tonight is Sam Miller, author of Blackfish City, recently nominated for the Nebula. You've already gotten his bio, so let's jump right in. Sam, welcome to the Dickheads Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, um, your book, Blackfish City, was absolutely one of my top reads last year, and we will get to that. And don't worry, Dickheads, we're going to nerd out about Philip K. Dick if you stick around with us long enough. We're going to get there, but I wanted to kind of introduce Sam and where he came from. So where did you grow up, Sam, and how did you discover science fiction?
2: I grew up in a pretty depressed economically uh, small town in upstate New York called Hudson, which is near Albany. Um, and I was the last in a long line of butchers. Um, my father and his father and his father had a, a butcher shop that went belly up when Walmart came to town. Um, and, um, you know, I, like a lot of nerds, um, spent a lot of time in the library. Uh, Ray Bradbury was my first real science fiction, um, obsession. I remember reading a lot of the golden age, uh, science fiction writers like Asimov and Heinlein and, um, kind of bouncing off of it, um, in a way that I didn't with Bradbury. His, there was like a, a, a beauty to his writing in addition to a, a, a great storytelling, um, and, and plotting, um, to his, his work. Uh, so that was my real sort of like beginning of, of, of love for science fiction. And, um, you know, the science fiction family tree is really, really weird and has a lot of strange branches, um, and roots. And I think, um, you know, William Burroughs is a writer who often isn't considered a science fiction writer, but I think is sort of like, especially if you're looking at the new wave of science fiction, uh, a sort of important progenitor. So, um, I remember reading Naked Lunch when I was a teenager because it was Kurt Cobain's favorite book, um, and being like horrified by it because it's extremely graphic and there's some really horrific scenes, um, but, but also like fascinated by it. And, and I kept coming back to it, um, in spite of or because of its horror.
1: Well, and you also, uh, have some experience with punk rock, which is the culture that I came out of, um, well, sci-fi and... I got into sci-fi when I was younger, but then punk rock together, and I think it was always kind of the whole outsider thing, so um, definitely I want to hear a little bit about your experience. I know you were in some punk bands, and um, what was your experience with punk rock?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I was a really angry teenager. Um, uh, I was really isolated, and I was dealing with a lot of... You know, I went to a school with a lot of jocks, and I was not a jock, and I went to a school with no out gay people, and I was a gay person, so I was dealing with a lot of bullying, and I was just generally miserable and unhappy, and I met some um, really hot punk rock boys, but the hotness was like, you know, just beside <laughs> the, the, the point, um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was the first time that I heard something that really echoed the sort of like shriek that was lodged in my throat. So, like, hearing the dead Kennedys, uh, hearing minor threat, um, you know, uh, I think that that really did something to me. But it also, you know, there was like a political level too, because, you know, like I said, Walmart came to town and put my family butcher shop out of business, made my whole family unemployed. Um, and so at the same time as I was, um, socially angry, I was also angry at like big corporations moving in and big, um, you know wanting to look at things from like a l- lens of what is independent what is uh about community and building and so that always appealed to me upon rock um and and it was just a you know a space for people who were angry to be angry together and to make something beautiful
1: yeah that's awesome so uh your i believe your first first book was the art of starving uh what was what was the art of starving about
2: that uh the art of starving is about a Uh, small-town, bullied gay boy with an eating disorder who believes that starving himself awakens latent supernatural abilities, and he uses those abilities to work on a quest to find out why his sister ran away from home.
1: Wow. Yeah, um, it has been on my list. I have never read it yet, I'll be honest, but, uh, I love the concept. Um, so obviously that's a deeply personal book, uh, that obviously, um, was probably really uh, intense personal experience for, for writing your for your first novel. Is that the first one you wrote, or the first one you published?
2: No, it was my debut novel, but also the seventh novel that I wrote, because I wrote six before that that nobody wanted, um, although I tried my damnedest to sell them on every street corner and knock on every window and door and ring every phone that I could. Um... But yeah, no, it was, I, you know, they, they, the advice they tell you is, uh, you know, tell the story that only you can tell. Um, but I felt like the story that only I could tell was so messed up and, and, uh, weird and dark and fucked up that no one would ever want to publish it. So I spent many years trying not to write The Art of Starving. Uh, but when I did, you know, I got a great agent and sold it really quickly. So it is true. It, you know, in my experience and, and in the experience of some of my writer friends who are among the, best uh awesomest folks out there it's it's best to go where your dark twisted heart is um rather than where you think uh, the market wants you to be um so yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of me in that book there's a lot of punk rock in that book um it's uh you know very much about finding yourself and you know that you can the gloss in that i think is, is that that i say is that you know, when you're young and you're angry, violence, uh, can give you power. There's a, there's a power that comes from violence. Um, and that, um, that's, it's not a, not a productive power. Um, the, the real power that, that we need to find is the power that comes from loving yourself and accepting yourself and knowing who you are and, and standing firmly in it. Um, so that's the sort of journey of that novel.
1: Yeah, it sounds really good. Um, so, uh, did okay. So you went to Clarion. I saw. Did you go in San Diego or in Seattle? And who were your teachers at Clarion?
2: Um, I went to Clarion, UCSD in 2012. Um, my instructors were Jeff Ford, Delia Sherman, Ted Chang, um, Walter John Williams, Holly Black, and Cassandra Clare.
1: Whoa! Yeah, that's quite a lineup. Yeah. So that's how you know about biking around San Diego, right?
2: No, I wasn't a biker then. I, I, oh, really? um, came back for the book tour for Art of Starving, and at which point I'd been converted into much more of a hardcore biker. And I borrowed a friend's bike and went all over town and, and had a really great time biking in San Diego. Um, but yeah, no, that was a real powerhouse lineup of instructors. And in fact, I had heard about Clarion, um, for years. You know, I was a heavy, Boing leader and Corey Doctorow, uh, who's one of the editors at Boing Boing, would always talk about Clarion. Um, so I knew that it existed, but it wasn't until I saw that Ted Chang was one of the instructors that I said, Oh, I have to admire mm-hmm. this. Because Story of Your Life gets my vote for the greatest science fiction story ever written.
1: Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, we're both Ted Chang fans here um, mm-hmm. uh, at uh, Dickheads. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, Clarion, I think, uh, so you would, I, I think you would probably credit, I mean, you said you had several novels written before you went to Clarion. Do you credit Clarion with helping you make the jump to to finish Art of Starving in, in a level that was ready to be published? Or, um, I mean, I it, it's got to be such an amazing experience to to translate some of the works that you'd already been working on, you know, from Clarion.
2: Sure. No, I absolutely credit Clarion with helping me make like a real quantum leap forward in my writing and in my publishing, <laughs> more, more importantly. Um, and I and I think some of it, I think that you go in there thinking that uh, it is uh, um, the instructors like, oh, Ted Chang is teaching. I really want to learn from Ted Chang And you go in there thinking the instructors are where you're going to get the most. And, and you do get a lot out of that. But for me, uh, it's more. it was more about the collectivity of it and the fact that you have you, it's you and 17 other writers, all of whom are at an early stage in their career, um, really helping each other improve and really, you know, um, I don't know if either of you are, are if you're Legend of Korra fans, um, but before I got on the plane to go to Clarion, I saw the finale of season one of Legend of Korra, and maybe I missed my plane um, because <laughs> it messed me up because it's a really good episode. And at the end, um, one of the characters says to Korra, when you reach your lowest point when you're capable of the greatest change. Um, and so Clarion was really about me sort of like realizing or sort of a little bit getting out of my head of thinking I'm so great um, and really being able to like benefit from collectivity and workshopping and learning from other folks. As a writer, you have to be able to hold two contradictory truths in your mind, right? You have to believe on the one hand that you're good and that your work is good and you... Uh, are worth asking other people to read it. But you also have to hold the, the, the complete opposite, which is, that, which is that you're not that great and you can always get better. You should always be learning to try to read and um, uh, find folks uh, to help make you better.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely great advice. Um, you know, I think uh, trusted readers are certainly underrated um, oh. as far as, like, having the reader... I know I've got the, this guy sitting right next to me is the guy that I know will tell me something's bullshit in my books <laughs> if That's I need a, to hear a price it price. yeah, I mean that having that friend who's willing to to call you out on your shit is really important um yeah. so uh Sam you're a one of the things that drew me to so I first discovered your existence. <laughs> From uh, listening to your many appearances on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, shout out to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, We I've done many times on this show, mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite podcasts, and you've been on there many times commenting on things ranging from xenomorphs to, I don't know, but you always bring some kind of class consciousness, or some kind of political event that myself as somebody who's got 20 years of activism uh you know in in my history uh I always appreciated so when i when you mentioned blackfish city and all the elements that were going on that we're going to eventually talk about uh, that was a no brainer for me um i you know looked it up the library saw they had it immediately got it and um you know i just want to talk about where did blackfish city come from how long have you been gestating it? And um, I know Art of Starving has a lot of your personal politics in it, but Blackfish City has a real global outlook. So can we talk about, can we give people a little introduction to the book and where it came from?
2: Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, Blackfish City is set in a floating uh, city in the Arctic after uh, rising sea levels have. Of- um transform the globe and uh opening up the Arctic to resource exploitation. So the Arctic is sort of like a, a boom a boom town and this is a floating city that's been constructed for refugees from the sunken world. Um and into this um hotbed of um uh, awesomeness and horror arrives a woman with a, a killer whale and a polar bear uh, by her side on a mission um that is uh, uh eventually uh and visually uh, uh uh explained um so so as for where I came from I mean you know I have a lot of uh strongly held beliefs and I've been doing community organizing for for over 15 years and I've been um you know it's it's always been really important to me to sort of look at um things like class and race and gender and oppression and how um, you know, uh, how conflict shapes societies and our lives. Um, so yeah, most of my books are gonna, or stories, you're gonna find a healthy dose of, um, you know, some real heavy shit, uh, for want of a more, uh, technical term. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was, this book really, the sort of seed of it comes from my, feelings about cities and having lived in New York City, uh, for, for, uh, like 18 years and having done community organizing in a city and and therefore having spent way more time than most people would want to, uh, in terms of, uh, like meeting with elected officials and researching how laws and policies happen and trying to look at why we have the problems that we have and what we can do to fix them. and so. Uh, this is my wanting to look at a city, to imagine a city that is unencumbered by history, right? Any kind of city, wherever you are, um, you have to grapple with its history. You know, you can't understand New York City without understanding, you know, the history of American racism and everything from the Civil War draft riots to um, the sort of uh, immigration beside to. So, whatever um so imagining a city that's free from history where some problems can be solved um you know for example a lot of the work that i do in new york is around police reform um and you know there are cities in the world that function just fine without a really racist you know, police force. um new york city is not one of them right uh you know uh new york city is a city where we have like this really aggressive police force that um a complete lack of accountability and aggression and hostility towards lots of communities, including um, uh, people of color. So wanting uh, to imagine, like, let's say there's a city where that isn't the case, or a city where there's abundant uh, geothermal energy so that we don't have to worry about things like heating or fuel or electricity um, or solving our energy problems. Um, so what problems can be solved, but also what problems can't be solved? Like you know, what problems will persist, right? We'll still probably have slumlords, um, trying to, um, uh, gouge prices and, and make people homeless and, um, keep housing off the market to keep the, the supply low and the demand high. So, you know, some problems can be solved, others cannot. Um, you know, but well, this, this is my, this is my sort of like utopian dystopia, uh, look at a, a future city.
1: Yeah. And so one of the things that I, uh, you know, you answered one of my questions, which was, uh, you know, why a, a totally fictional city? And I, I definitely get what you're saying about how it, it takes away like a historical aspect, but you put so much work into the world building. Um, I'm interested in one of the strengths of this novel for me is that the, the, the city and you told me how to pronounce it before we started recording, but um, it's Quanak or I... Uh, I
2: pronounce it I pronounce it I add to K. Okay,
1: um, okay. But... yeah, mm-hmm. and, and so this this city seems very fully realized, very well researched, in my opinion. It feels lived in, kind of like when you see like the dirt on the starships and Star Wars. I I you know I really felt that it was very lived in. Um Did you? Kind of outline or plan the city. Did you make maps? Did you do any of those kinds of things when you were writing this book?
2: Well, I did make it pretty easy on myself because the shape of the city is, I mean, you know, because it's a, it's a floating city that was constructed completely. It didn't have to worry about geography, um, or topology. Um, you know, I could just say it's an eight armed asterisk with, uh, you know, uh, eight arms. All of equal length, ten kilometers. Um, so it's yeah, it's just a big, it's just a big star floating in the in the in the uh, ocean. Um, but then also thinking about like how you know what's true of every city, right? There's neighborhoods. There's the place where the working class lives. There's the place where the very poor live. There's the place where the rich live. And those neighborhoods shift and change over time, um, and the population of those neighborhoods changes. Um, so really trying to map a lot of what I've come to know about cities and, and, and how they, what, what makes them amazing, um, uh, and, uh, into, into this sort of vessel that was like a blank canvas to be filled. Um, because, you know, even the things that I think, you know, people cite when, you know, I've heard people call it dystopian, which I don't, you know, fully, uh, agree with. Um, but, you know even a lot of the things that people would point to as as negative i think are are positive right the fact that you have um you know street art right there's a lot of graffiti is something that a lot of people associate with disorder and crime and um you know ugliness um but that is actually really beautiful i think and and makes makes a city special and, and is a is a canvas for folks to feel ownership of their their city um So yeah, adding a lot of that, the, the, the many ways in which people make a city their own, um, even if the city is, even if they don't own anything, right? Even if there's just a tenant, um, who's, you know, struggling to pay rent, um, they have just as much ownership of the city as anyone else.
1: So the, the characters are really strong in Blackfish City. And, and I think the representation, um, it doesn't seem forced, but, uh, you have definitely a lot of, Diverse characters, uh, including characters with gender fluidity. And I'll admit, like, early in the book, there were times where, um, I got, uh, a little confused. <laughs> uh, but what was great is that for me is that uh, the longer I read the book, it's, the characters became to life and be- became very much a part of the city. And I'm wondering, uh, did you have a lot of the characters in mind? Are you, um, are you a pantser or an outliner with, like, how did this process happen in the, in the writing with characters?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, um, often have a, you know, at any given moment, I've got like hundreds of thousands of story particles bouncing around in my head, and sometimes they're really small. Like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a lady who had a killer whale for her best friend? Uh, or what if there was a floating city in the Arctic? Um, and sometimes those will start to bounce off each other. So sometimes a story or or novel will start with characters. Sometimes it'll start with a fictional, like a a superpower or a speculative conceit. Uh, This one really started with the Orcomancer, um, and with this this woman who arrives in town with a killer whale. Um, and so, so yeah, I think I, I tend to let these things percolate until I have a lot in place. I don't always do like a very rigorous outline in terms of like, Here's everything that's going to happen in the book. Um, but I generally don't start until I have a lot of pieces. Um, like I know that there's going to be, um, you know, these people and this is their ultimate, uh, this is where the plot is going to end up. Um, and how we get there, I'm not always sure, but, but, and, and some of it I'll outline as I go. So I'm a, you know, like one pant on, one pant leg off, uh, <laughs> half pants or half,
1: half outliner. Right. So what's cool about this book for me is that I think if you're going to just throw out, like, subgenre labels, I mean, obviously this book can live just as science fiction, but uh, in the kind of subgenres, we, I mean, there's a lot of cyberpunk influence, there's a neo-noir kind of thing going on, there's, like, the whole world building with the city, but uh, most importantly, I think right now, because it's a really important subgenre as far as um, the warning novel and the subgenre of Cli 5, did the addressing climate change it sounds like it kind of came natural once you created the character of the Orcamancer and uh, I, I, am, am I wrong is that did the did the climate change aspects of it kind of come naturally after the creation of that character or just out of the seeds of that character
2: I, I think it was. Always going to be in the mix. Um, if I'm thinking about the future, I can't not be thinking about that. Um, I mean, one of the things that is 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 um, central to my work as a community organizer, and and then one of the most frustrating parts is getting people to care about things that they don't care about. Um, right. Is looking at things like homeless people and saying, uh, actually, it's not. That's not that guy's problem. That he's homeless. That's it's our problem, and it's um, you know your struggling to pay your rent in an expensive city like new york um you actually have a lot more in common or san diego (laughs) or san francisco or los angeles or boston or chicago right we're all impacted by that the high cost of housing it's in all of our interests to fight for a city where people can afford to live and not you know break their backs working incredible hours um for crummy pay uh so you know that's a lot of my fiction is a, a, a different mode of that same struggle. Um, you know, here in New York, I've been working for years on a campaign around landlords who keep vacant property off the market so they can artificially inflate, uh, um, the cost of housing. And no one, and it's been, you know, very slow. No one cares about it. Uh, people don't see it as a problem. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll do it in the future and add robots and, and killer whales and polar bears and then people will care about it. Um, so it's the same way with, with with issues of climate change and looking at the fact that how many people are either, um, you know, openly hostile to the idea and reject it and say it's not real or almost as bad, if not worse, in a different way is people who are just like, eh, it's going to happen. What am I going to do? Uh, so wanting to really um, tell a story that foregrounds the power that we have and the power that we have as individuals, but also as members of communities um, to do something about the problems that we face.
1: All right, so I kind of lied about one thing before we start. I do have one really intense note that I pulled out of the book. Um,
2: yeah,
1: and uh, I really, of course, um, being an anti-capitalist myself, um, I really loved um, how this book uh, addresses capitalism at in, 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 in many instances and many times. But my favorite quote from the book, and I highlighted this in my review on my blog too, there's a quote, uh, I have no idea what page it's on, but, um, it's, quote, Money is a mind, the oldest artificial intelligence. Its prime directives are simple. Its programming endlessly creative. Humans obey it unthinkingly. With cheerful,
2: uh, uh al- alacrity.
1: Uh, alacrity, yeah, you know what I'm talking sorry. Like a virus, it doesn't care if it kills its host, it will simply flow onto someone new. Man, I love that quote. <laughs> I pulled that right out Thank of the book. You. And, um, you know, for all my reviews, um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, some of the ideas that you got there? I love the idea of money being the oldest artificial intelligence.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember very clearly the genesis of that concept, which was many years ago. It was actually in 2011. Um, and we did a protest where, as part of this campaign around landlords keeping property, uh, empty. We did a takeover of a vacant lot that was owned by Chase uh, Bank, um, and we like took the fence, took down the chain link fence, and built a tent city. And it was it wasn't like intended to like be a place where people would live. We wanted to do like a performance art slash, you know, basically reclaim the space for as long as we could hold it. Um, uh, and like we had like a fashion show, and we fed people, and we had like spoken word poetry, and just really trying to show. Like how, how much a community can do with a space that is currently being viewed as a, a, a vacant lot or like an asset on this spreadsheet somewhere. And when we, and we realized that, you know, you know, the cops showed up, they arrested a bunch of us, um, and, um, you know, we had to put pressure on Chase to get them to drop the charges. Nobody at Chase knew they had this lot. There was no human who had ever made that purchase, right? It had been acquired, um, by, you know, Lord knows who. Um, you know, for so many, um, people, uh, who are wealthy, whether they're stockbrokers or real estate developers or whoever, they don't deal in concretes. They're dealing in, in really abstract concepts and making purchases that don't mean anything to them. And so really, the, the, it's almost like the, we are the parasites on the, um, on the, on the backs of the, of the resources, whether they're money, or, or or land or whatever. So so really feeling like we we are incidental and in many cases controlled by um, by money and that money dictates what we do with it. And so you know most of the time when you're you look at things like why landlords um, charge so much rent, they don't have a choice. They they of course of course they could choose to to, to uh, lower their rents, but it is the dictates of money. Money demands to be multiplied. Money demands to make more of itself. Um, And that's what they were big.
1: Right. And what I thought was kind of neat in that moment was, um, you know, I I had this feeling of like, no matter how uh, different or futuristic or weird the city was, it comes down to the same issues I'm dealing with, with paying my rent, those kinds of things. I thought that was kind of neat. Blackfish City, uh, the the reaction has been great. I'm really I get I'm really pleased to see all the time like the fact that it got nominated for the nebula all that. Um personally, uh it should win the PKD award this year and we'll get to that later when we talk about PKD. Um if I was a voter on that, I'd be it'd be chewing with me. Uh but what's the reaction to Blackfish City and how has it been for you seeing the, you know, now that this uh brain baby is out in the world?
2: Oh, it's been phenomenal. I mean, I am, uh, you know, I've been publishing short fiction for a while. And the thing about short fiction is it's, it's a very cozy world. You know, you publish a short story in a science fiction outlet like Clark's World or Lightspeed. Um, and it will be read by other science fiction writers. Um, and you'll have great conversations with people and you you know, it's, it's, we're, we're all colleagues. We're all friends. We all really, you know, we don't all love everything we do but you know you'll find your crew of the folks who are doing stuff that's like you um but with a novel like actual humans read (laughs) novels right there's you know there's uh there's obviously authors read and and write and critique um novels but but the fact that you get conversations happening you know way beyond the, the 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 community of folks critique and talk about in short fiction so it's been it's been pretty crazy to sort of go to this new place where suddenly you know i was just just before this i was doing a book club visit with a um a bookstore in puerto rico that read the book and their, their book club was discussing it and we did a skype visit with them so yeah it's been crazy um you know i mean one thing is that like uh it's kind of like a drug so you know you go you get a few tweets about your book and you're you, you know you're really happy but then you get used to that and then you're a day went by without one, and you're like, no one loves me. My baby is forgotten. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's like, it's like any kind of attention. It's easy to get, um, your head turned by it. Um, but it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, you know, you, know, you, you write weird, twisted books like this, and you hope that it'll find folks who love it. And, and you're, you, you do it pretty sure you're not going to be a New York Times bestseller, um, using they, them pronouns. Um, but, you do it because there's going to be folks who will connect with it and, and whether that's, you know, five or 20 or whatever, it's, it's
1: amazing. Right. Uh, I, I love the book and I hope dickheads out there will check out this book because I do, uh, feel that, you know, we, you know, we recently did a, a, um, a whole podcast about, uh, Norman Spinrad's Journal of the Plague Years, which was his, um, take on HIV and the whole AIDS crisis and, and we talked a lot about how we were kind of bummed that uh, we didn't get to see P- P.K.D. address this issue because we just, you know, he could have done such amazing things with it. And I think all the time about, like, how would Philip K. Dick translate uh, the climate change world? He did a lot about uh, the nuclear issues in the 50s and we're really entrenched right now in the early PKD, because that's what we've been doing on the podcast. But, you know, like, for example, Second Variety is such a a nuclear threat book, and I would love to know, or get a like, talk about what what, what do you think PKD would be doing to address climate change? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I love most about Phil K. Dick is that um not that he's the only one who did, did did this but i think he did it in a way that really transformed science fiction which is that he wasn't writing about the rocket ship captain or the you know the president he was writing about the android um or the cop or the drug addict or um the you know you know the the, the people who were had not historically been centered often the you know very marginalized folks one of my favorite things about um The, the man in the high castle, which I don't know if I reread it, reread it now, um, how, um, how much I would still like this, but I remember reading it and being really impressed with the extent of, of humanity and complexity that the, um, the Japanese characters who ostensibly would have been the villain in, in most, I think, um, narrations of that, of that storyline were given. Um, so, you know, I think that that kind of radical decentering of, um, of, of where power normally lies would incline, um, Philip K. Dick to be much more interested in, like, what does the climate refugee who's, you know, discovered a new drug in the ruins of, um, a fallen city have to say about climate change than the, the president who is denying that it's a problem? Um, you know, I think that, 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 that he would have some really interesting takes on it and, and would bring us up close and, um, and give us a real close-up look of some aspects of climate change that we might not have thought about in a way that I think would help people, you know, get it in ways that they might not be now.
1: Well, you know, we always find, because, you know, we listen to a lot of his interviews, and we chop them up for bits on the, on the show, and, uh, you know, we recently interviewed a historian who was really taken aback by comparing these two different quotes from PKD in different eras, And one of the things that I think gives him a strength, and I know it's a strength I don't have, because I have very definite political views. (laughs) And what's cool about BKD is that he was such a provocateur in in so many ways that there were times where he would take a position and you'd just be like, what? Because he already said this, and his characters would do all kinds of different things. And it was clear that he had a liberal or a progressive viewpoint overall, but he certainly had no problem, like you said, with the Japanese characters in Man in the Night Castle, exploring ideas that were not necessarily his own. I don't know if you have noticed that in his work, too.
2: Yeah, I think so. And what the limited bit that I know about him as a person is that he had, you know, his ideas shifted. He, um, you know, was a, what, whatever issues he had where he could be like, you know, in his personal life, uh, be very, be very good friends with Thomas Dish and then write a letter to the FBI denouncing him, saying that, uh, his novels had secret signals for, uh, for cells, uh, or communist sleeper cells. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a chimeric nature to him that I think would probably give us some unanticipated or, or, or surprising takes on, on whatever subject he addressed, including climate change.
1: So, what was your uh, gateway drug to uh, Philip K. Dick? How did you discover Philip K. Dick? Uh,
2: I think, I think that it was "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep."
1: Like all think, of us, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: I mean, <laughs> I know it's, I know it's the poser answer, but it is the answer. Um, uh, know, that's the uh, same for
1: both of us. So, <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, I think that I, I was never. I love Blade Runner on many levels, but Blade Runner is not one of my, like, all-time favorite movies the way that I know that some people are, like, passionately, intensely in love with it. And actually, it took me a while. It took me several viewings over, over many years to really see what it was doing that was so special. So I didn't come to it from the, like, oh my god, this movie is so good perspective. Um, I don't remember how I did come to it, uh, except that it was shortly after I had moved to New York City and, um, I was reading a lot of, um, I would, yeah, it'd be fascinating to try to draw that, to connect the dots to how I got there. But it was, it was in the context of reading a lot about, um, New York City. It might have even been Thomas Dish. It might have even been something of mm-hmm.
1: So, um, do you have, uh, personal favorites from PKD? Like, uh, what, what's, what's your, uh, favorite part of it, of his, uh, catalog?
2: Well, you know, Do Android's Dream really does hold up. Like, I reread it not too long ago, expecting it to be pulpy and shittily written, and it's a beautifully written book that, that I think really holds its own. Um, The Man in the High Castle, I think, is really special. Um, I think The Man in the High Castle might be my favorite, because I feel like it's making the kind of conceptual leap and, and really, like, meta special thing that, uh, only the very best speculative fiction does. Um, and so the sort of like end, end place of the book is, is, uh, yeah, it just gives you the, the kind of shiver that only a really smart ending can give you.
1: Well, and what's really interesting too about Man the High Castle is it's sandwiched between Balkan's Hammer and Game Player's of Titan in, in his catalog, which is really weird because you got these total, I mean, I like them, but comparatively to Man in the High Castle, they're crap fest pulp novels that have their, you know, the things I like about them. However, Man in the High Castle is such a weird book to be kind of in between those two. And I I personally like that he lives in both those worlds of the pulp and the, and the, you know, like more higher class sci-fi.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of his short fiction, I think. Inhabits pulp in a really brilliant way.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, you know, the thing about and, and, of course, like we like to to nerd out about different things in PKD, and we always like to look and and, and I know we already talked a little bit about how we do uh, climate change, but I'm wondering if um, you could give us your perspective on how. How did PKD change the genre from your perspective?
2: I mean, I think that he, you know, like I mentioned, I think that there's part of a really radical decentering of power in his work that, uh, is, you know, not unique to him, um, and was part of, I think, a conversation that a lot of the sort of like so-called new wave of science fiction, uh, writers were doing. Um, but I think he brought it help in a, in a way that no one else did really help bring it down to the sort of grit, uh, and street level, um, of like, you know, a dope fiend shivering, um, as opposed to like, uh, man of power wrestling with a difficult decision. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that, that is important. I think that there is like, a a prophetic quality to him, not only in the, uh, not only in the sense of like, you know, he's anticipating things that are going to come true in really interesting ways. Um, but, uh, but there's a prophetic quality in that he's sort of like naming the future of science fiction before it is the future of science fiction. So I think that like, you know, Man in the High Castle and Blue Android's Dream are sort of like really, like, like you said, uh, High Castle is out of place within his own, body of work, but it's also out of place within, like, where the genre would go. Um, so, you know, those, it, it's, it's always hard to chart influence the And I think that, you know, he is definitely inhabiting a, a space that, like, Samuel Delaney was also in, in, inhabiting. And, and so I think that it, it, it isn't in isolation, but I think it's, it's an important part of a, of a really big shift in, 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 science fiction that, that has sort of paved the way for, for what we have today. Um, you know, Thomas Dish being another one where you have, you know, gay writers, black writers, folks who were, you know, really trying to take the genre in new directions in ways that I think have, um, you know, are are really happening in exciting ways right now.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting to us, too, when we were researching Man in the High Castle, um, you know, it wasn't Hugo, but, man, some of the editors that PKD worked with during his pulp years, they hated the shit out of that book, and they talked mad mad shit on it uh, in the months leading up to it winning when it was just nominated. And it was crazy to me to see, like, you know, like Don Wolheim, who was his editor at Ace, like, saying that it wasn't science fiction, that it was trash, and all this stuff. And it's hard to believe, looking back now, that that was the reaction to Man in the High Castle. Yeah.
2: No, I think that's always an interesting, um, uh, boundary, to be policed right when people start saying something isn't science fiction um or or calling into question its genre credentials it's often because it's doing something new and it's 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 not doing something that you that they particularly like and why is that why don't you like what it's doing um you know i think that you you have that a lot with a lot of women writers and and women of color writers specifically who um in recent years have really like been doing the most amazing and important and exciting and best writing, and how many people were just like, oh, that's not real. Like, that's not, that's a diversity hire, or that's, uh, you know, that, that doesn't have merit. Um, yeah. What it what they mean is it doesn't, it's not, it's not doing what I want it to do. And, and, and what you want it to do is often something that's problematic or reveals more about your own biases uh, than what, than, than anything else.
1: Yeah. So, um Just to kind of start wrapping things up, um, how are, who are some of the, um, underrated diverse voices that you think the genre is missing from your perspective? I know I've got a few that, you know, I've been singing the praises of on my blog and on the podcast, but I'm really interested from your perspective. Who, who are we missing out on?
2: It's tough to say because often I feel like I have a very hard time assessing what, like, you know, Uh, people outside my circle of friends, uh, who I geek out with, um, are really saying. So, um, often I will think, so everybody, I will think that everybody already knows who Alyssa Long is and is already loving her fiction. Um, and then find out that people will not. So, you know, um, yeah, I had that,
1: I had that experience at the PK Day, PK Day, PKD Film Fest. I was talking to somebody about Nadia Okafor and I just assumed that they knew who she was and I was kind of, Really bummed that they had no yeah. idea about the Benzie trilogy, and I was just like, no, nah, man, you gotta go read that. It's so yeah. good.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, N.K. Jemison just won the Hugo for best novel three years in a row, so I can't, I, I can't imagine there's too many genre fans who are not at least aware of her, but mm-hmm. um, I think there are a lot of folks who have held off on reading it, uh, on reading her for, for problematic reasons, but she's the, she's to me the most exciting writer um, in science fiction and fantasy today, um, you know. Uh, um, El Motar, Seth Dickinson, Max Broadstone, um, uh, Brooke Bolander, Laura Elena Donnelly, um, uh, Don Johnson. I could go on and on. There's a ton of great, of great writers, um, who are doing great stuff. Who, you know, unless they're millionaires, they, you know, more people need to know about them, even if they are well known. They're not well known enough unless, uh, they're New York Times bestsellers.
1: Alright, so we gotta do our part to help, uh, you get on the, the number one slot on the bestseller list, cause, you know, you get that dickhead bump. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, well, okay. But you got another book coming out, and, uh, I've read a little bit about it. I'm super excited about it. Can you tell us about Destroy All Monsters?
2: Sure. Uh, Destroy, Destroy All Monsters is my second young adult novel, um, being published with Harper Teen, and it's, um, it's about a, uh, it's, it's two, two stories, right? One is sort of a gritty contemporary set in the real world about a teenage girl named Ash, whose best friend Solomon, um, is, is uh, cycling into really extreme mental illness and, and she's trying to, to save him. Um, but it's also the story of, uh, a boy named Solomon who lives in a city full of dinosaurs and magic. Whose best friend Ash is the refugee princess and she's in danger and he's trying to save her. Um, so it's these two stories. One is set in our world and one is set in a, in, in a fantasy world. And they start to, um, you know, we, we go back and forth between them until they start to morph into one and to influence each other as the, their two quests, the, the quests of Ash and Solomon in both worlds, become revealed to be just one quest. Oh, that's
1: awesome. Well, in the meantime, because it doesn't come out for a couple months. Uh, they they everybody here needs to read everybody listening right now watching at home on YouTube whatever gotta go out and get Blackfish City because um uh, shit is real um I, I I absolutely loved it so just one last thing on Blackfish City um uh, one of the aspects of the the neo noir the 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 cyberpunk aspect I think gets a little bit overlooked because of the Cli-Fi thing people are really uh, uh, attached to that uh what what's your cyberpunk influence and um can you talk about those aspects of of, of this book because I did kind of forget to talk about that a little bit
2: sure I mean you know I know it's what everybody says but like William Gibson is one of my favorite writers I think that uh, William Gibson brings like a degree of um, you know most of what he does is really on point in terms of plot, in terms of, um, their, his imagination and, and how, how gritty and real and live the world is. But also the thing that I love the most is his characters have a ton of heart. Um, it's something he doesn't, people don't always like include in the list of reasons why they love him. Um, but I always sort of fall into these characters and their weird quests and their damage because they're, Really alive in in a really compelling way, and that's something that I, you um, know, and and would 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 love to be able to equal, and and, um, and, and certainly striving to get there. And, and stuff like Doctor like City.
1: Well, yeah, and I see that influence, but I would also say one of the things that um, is a strength. I mean, I love Gibson, but I think some of his stuff is a little inaccessible for the average reader. But what I think is really cool about Blackfish City is I think uh, it's a very accessible book as well. I think it's not just for genre readers. I think uh, definitely people who, you know, the mainstream, uh, this, this is an airport book. It should be anyways. This is one that I think could get out to a wider audience, and the message is so important. And by message... I mean, there's many messages to this book. It's not just uh, a single, like, finger pointed at at the reader. I think there's lots of there's a kaleidoscope of interesting ideas about ranging from, you know, capitalism, how the structure of the cities work, to history, to the social political, all of it. And fi I love it. So, uh, any last things you want to leave our dickheads with?
2: No, uh, just that I'm really grateful to y'all for, for reading my book and taking the time to talk to me about it. And I, I, uh, I, uh, am honored and excited to be sort of like in a conversation, um, however posthumously with Philip K. Dick.
1: Well, yeah, I think you earned it. Um, I, 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 I'm so bummed this book is not, um, winning the PKD award, but it has a chance to win the Nebula. And that's so awesome. Uh, so everybody get out and support that book, uh, Blackfish City. And thank you, Sam Miller, for joining Dickheads. Keep it paranoid. That's, stay paranoid. Keep it paranoid.